Hello and welcome to Under the Skin with me, Russell Brand, the host of the podcast. We're speaking to Michael Pollan in a minute. He's written some good books. His latest is This Is Your Mind on Plants. He's an American author. He's a journalist. He, he's known for the botany of desire, the omnivores dilemma. But you, you probably saw him recently in that thing he done about caffeine with Joe Rogan. What did you think of our conversation with Michael Pollan? He's very nice and calm. He's nice and calm. Yeah. Are you feeling nice and calm, Jen? Does tired count as nice and calm? Both, so it's part of the way, as long as you're not distressed or depressed. Oh. How's that? <laughs> <laughs> Why are you depressed for now? What is it this week? It's not, it's the same thing. You think you're constantly depressed? Yeah. I know that you've improved. <laughs> it's a different kind of mutated. Don't <laughs> so, try and say you've got so, a new depression so, variant, so just so you can keep it going. <laughs> Anything else, Jen? Do you want to do some banter? Banter decanter. Yeah, our kittens are doing well. Yeah. Would you would you want no to do some banter? Oh, uh, I thought <laughs> I thought we just did some, didn't we? Do a bit Why of banter. Why are you not picking could, on my impression? Uh, do do some banter at me. Uh, you're wearing a top that supports something. Is it backwards though? Oh no. Is that the front? No, account? it's not. That's not the front. No, you'd always put like a little tag right under the nape of the neck. That's what you'd do if you're a designer. You wouldn't put it under the Adam's apple. <laughs> <laughs> it's like poking you in the Adam's apple. Well, that little tag. Yeah, yeah you're right. Jen, I think we're all a bit tired. We, we need some time I'm exhausted. Off. I actually are. Yeah. Why? Bit of <laughs> hard work. Yeah. What are we yeah. going to do, Jen? We need a rest. When are we resting? Next Friday. Next Friday's the yeah, rest. Yeah. Will we make it that far? No. <laughs> we still have Swindon. Swindon is at the eve. We've got of Swindon a... on Thursday. Sold out, isn't it? But I is think it? we're pretty. Yeah, of course. But we'll release some whole tickets. So if you want to come, go to russellbrand.com, get them. Yeah. I'm so Swindon. tired, Jen. Yeah, I'm me so too. Tired. Hmm? Yeah. Well, yep. You just said yep to nothing there, <laughs> didn't you? Because I'm tired. That's, that's mental illness. I know, you just know that I'm mentally ill. Right. We're going to need it's more tiring. therapy this little no, game. No, it's too much, because then you have to listen to yourself talk about how you're mentally ill. Isn't that just like a Maybe you're circuitous? right. Maybe you're right. Maybe we need a sort of shock. Yeah, I kind of feel like being beaten up. <laughs> You'd like it, like Fight Club, how you get get beaten up and it'd be nice. Yeah. Oh, yeah, you're right. I'm doing jiu-jitsu tomorrow. I'll get beaten up there. Okay. All right, so listen, let's have some listener shout-outs. Listen to shout outs. Natasha Gray says, I just wanted to say a massive thanks. I started the journey of Under the Skin when the pandemic first hit. Like everyone, I went a bit bonkers. And in the beginning, I settled on allowing my vulnerability, trust, news trickles and education free flow with your podcast. Lots of offshoots and inspiration. Adam Curtis mixed with Wim Hof, Eckhart with Merlin. That's good, isn't it? That's what I wanted to provide people with. A really sort of uh, some good mentors and teachers. Currently revisiting that old friend grief and looking to Amanda Palmer. We'll have a look at David Kessler. If grief's your game, mate. Um, lots of uh, lots of thought processes which led me to feel I, I was in an amazing kaleidoscopic educational course. We're going to start a masterclass, aren't we, Jen? Mm -hmm. Don't say mm -hmm like that. <laughs> that bit of, do it with a bit more enthusiasm. Isn't that why? Because enthusiasm. Well, good. I'm supposed to go yay. Something like that, because do you know enthusiasm what it means? That you're into something. It means God is with you. Oh, well, he's gone. <laughs> no. God is with you, Jen. God is all there is, Jen. Well, he's not very loud, is he? <laughs> <laughs> not with you, but with Russ, he's coming through loud and clear. I don't think that's enthusiasm, is it? <laughs> enthusiasm with the Lord, the light of the Lord, Jen. Mm. The power of God, the, the God's power. Let it in, Jen. Let it in. Don't fight it, Jen. Ditch the alcohol, did Natasha Gray, and finally applied for a master's in psychotherapy. So yes, Russell and team, keep doing what you're doing. Well done, team. Well done, everyone in the team, except for one person. Yes, Jen. No. You don't know who it's going to be yet. I do. <laughs> Go on, who is it going to be? Me. Yeah, it was going to be you, actually, yes. KRSK90 says, fantastic, really makes you think about things. Thanks. Rebecca T says, I just wanted to send a quick email with some thanks to Russell and the team. 
I've found that the content on YouTube, Russell's books, and the Underskin podcast has played a powerful role in my life over the last few years. I've always struggled with my mental health, and honestly, the content you all work to create alongside therapy has helped me change for the better. Look, I'm still in therapy. Jen's in therapy. We're all trying our best. We've got to communicate. We've got to awaken the latent powers within us. We've got to let go of our neurosis and our negative patterns. There's neurological pathways that can be closed, new ones that can be opened. We can alter our little brainios with a bit of effort. Michael Pollan, he'll be good on this, won't he? Because of all those plants he's took. Don't you think? Mm-hmm. Jen. <laughs> yes, it'll be really good. <laughs> <laughs> Slightly better, I suppose. <laughs> Remember above the noise as well. Try a bit of meditation there. Jen, are you meditating enough? No, probably not. I tried it. Come and see me live. Sign up to the mailing list and check out all my YouTube videos. Go over there now and watch them. That'll give you a bit of passion. Right, now let's get into Under the Skin with Michael Pollan. Trying to achieve equality with the annihilation of category is not no, a successful that, route. Yes, that's, that's, that's exactly right. We're in this era where it turns out we were never the boss. It doesn't look like an ideology. What's beneath the surface of people we admire, of the ideas that define our time, the history we are told? And welcome to Russell Brand Under the Skin. Michael, thank you so much for coming on Under the Skin. Happy to be here, Russell. I've been fascinated by your work for a while, and I found my, well, if you probably, who cares how I found my way in, but we were just talking about caffeine, and what sort of interested me about sort of where we were going is it's perhaps a, a more, um, it's a substance that's perhaps more easy to measure the particular inflection it may have lent consciousness, and uh, perhaps is a, a, a nice place to launch from when trying to better understand how the systems we create are a reflection of our perception and how if our perception altered the systems and structures and institutions we create might alter. What kind of yeah. revelations did you have when you were on your, um, your expeditions and your voyages into the world of plants and consciousness? Yeah, so, you know, I, I wanted to write about a psychoactive plant uh or two of them in the case of caffeine that most of us don't even think of as a drug but that had a profound influence on our our, on what we think of as our everyday normal consciousness and um caffeine's an interesting case because it arrives relatively late in europe uh it shows up in england uh in the decade of the 1650s along with tea and chocolate it was a very good decade uh from the standpoint of uh, plant goodies. Um, but, you know, if you if you look at alcohol or cannabis or opium, these have been part of human history going back before history. So we don't really know what things were like before they showed up. And caffeine, we do. And we see a real change in, in human consciousness. Um, people move from a, a, a society organized around alcohol to a remarkable extent. Everybody drank. Everybody drank all day long. Um, you get you even gave your children hard cider, alcoholic cider, because it was safer to drink than water. Uh, water would give you diseases, but the fermentation and the alcohol um, essentially killed off the microbes in, uh, in water. So it was safe and everybody was kind of buzzed. They even had beer breaks uh, at uh, on farms. Uh, they would give you beer to just keep you going, give you some calories and uh, keep you happy. Um, so, but we, so we see the shift when caffeine comes in and it doesn't completely displace alcohol. God knows alcohol still plays a very important role in our societies, but it diminished it, especially at work. Um, and you have people writing about this change of, you know, that workers now, uh, are using this, uh, what they call this, um, this civil and sober drink. And, um, it allows for a new kind of thinking that's very linear um, very focused, um, uh, able to converse and plan and abstract. And it's very good for things like science, double entry bookkeeping, uh, running heavy machinery, all of which was needed for to have an industrial revolution. So it was incredibly helpful to the rise of capitalism. Uh, and it created the kind of worker that could thrive in this new environment. Um, so uh, it really did change everything in uh, in European history. If uh, we can um, to, if not chart, perhaps 
appreciate the impact of a substance such as caffeine, which you are even now enjoying for those I am right enjoying now, yeah. the audio experience, then, which is, you know, by, um, I suppose we would have to say is a sort of a psychoactive substance as opposed to certainly not a, in, ordinarily a psychedelic drug. What kind of, like, it's interesting, isn't it, that sort of plant medicines seem to be... Um, what do I want to say, sort of confined to creative and spiritual domains and the um, the, the impact that they might have on hegemony and in institutions and the organisation of society is something that we don't sort of really ponder other than perhaps to conspiratorially conject that the yeah. impact might be negative. Did you, uh, across your vision quests, or however you term them, like, did you um, did you um, have uh, any insights into the, the like if you know if ca if the introduction of caffeine creates or capital or facilitates or ex expedites capitalism, uh, what might you what would you posit that you know the Im impact of sort of psychedelic plants and medicines might be on the way we organize our culture? You know, I think every. Uh, psychoactive that we've been engaged with in, in a big way changes things um, to different degrees. I, I think psychedelics are an interesting case because uh, they show up in the West in the 50s and 60s. LSD is invented in the 40s, but it isn't really around. Uh, it's not disseminated until the 50s and then wildly disseminated in the 60s. And I think most people would agree it had a disruptive influence on society. Now, whether that disruption was good or bad depends on your politics, I think. Um, uh, there were a lot of things that needed to be disrupted. Uh, in the United States, the Vietnam War would be one uh, example. And um, at least President Nixon thought that the use of LSD was um, inspiring uh, young boys to uh, think for themselves and actually refuse to go to war, uh, many of them. That's an unprecedented thing in history. Normally, you, you send the 18-year-old off to war and to die, and they go. It's just what you do. Um, so there was this kind of, you know, efflorescence of independent thinking, questioning authority. And I think it's fair to 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 say that the psychedelics had something to do with it. I think they had something to do with the, the, the rise of the counterculture. I mean, it was a very unusual time um, where you had young people and old people occupying a different cultural space um, to a remarkable extent. Um, there was different music if you were young, different clothing, different sexual mores, different uh, way of speaking. We called it the generation gap. And I think it had a lot to do with the fact that young people were having a, a, a legitimate rite of passage that was the acid trip. And unlike most rites of passage, which knit a society together, this one, since it wasn't being organized by the elders, but by the kids themselves, had the opposite effect. And it pulled society apart. Um, and so, you know, I think that's one example. I, I, you could look at cocaine during the 80s. You know, there is a drug, in a way, it's kind of caffeine on steroids that um, contributes to a kind of, um, uh, you know, an ability to work crazy hours, um, a high level of kind of egocentric um, thinking. I mean, I see, I see drugs on a spectrum, many of them, the ones that build egos and the ones that dissolve egos. And caffeine is an ego builder, cocaine is an ego builder, and uh, psychedelics are an ego softener. Uh, cannabis too, I think. Um, and you know, so there. Sometimes you want to, you need egos to be strong. Egos get a lot done. Egos are incredibly useful tools that we have, but sometimes it gets out of hand and leads to uh, greed and and selfish behavior and. Um, and isolation. I think when we're all trapped in our egos, you know, egos build walls, defensive walls. Um, so drugs play around with those, you know, big terms of consciousness and um, in ways that can be very useful or or not. I mean, they, you know, I mean, I mean, you know perfectly well that drugs can be allies or poisons. Um, they can get us in trouble, too. Michael, did your experiences alter your politics and I've 
you know, I'm familiar with the books, but like, like, uh, and I know that you sort of had different experiences with different elders and different wisdom traditions and stuff. And but I wonder, it's like sort of here today, how your politics, your your sort of personal relationships, and your understanding of say God and consciousness were impacted by these experiences, and how much of um, the sort of treasure of those revelations you're able to instantiate in sort of ordinary experience. You know, my so I had a series of experiments with psychedelics of various kinds, and some were in a kind of westernized context, uh, taking them alone or with uh, my wife, or um, and others were with a, a shaman or somebody, you know, some kind of wisdom elder. Um, and it did have an effect. Um, on my politics, I'm not so sure. I think it tends to accentuate the politics you already have. I mean, there are people very optimistic that psychedelics will lead us to a greater appreciation of the natural world. And there's some evidence that increases your sense of being connected to nature. But my guess is that the people who are taking psychedelics are already inclined in that direction. The test is going to be to give it to very conservative people, to give it to, you know, coal mining lobbyists and, um, uh, you know, people like that and, and Trumpies and see what happens to their politics. And I, I'm very eager to see that, that kind of research. Um, in my case, um, it gave me, I had an experience of like complete ego dissolution on a high dose of psilocybin guided by a, uh, a wonderful woman who I had enormous confidence in and felt very safe in her presence and was because you have to be willing to surrender to such an experience. It's, it's, it's quite profound and, and, and can be quite scary. I mean, you know, you look out and you see yourself detonating in a cloud of blue post-it notes as I did, and then fall to the ground in a puddle of blue paint. I don't know why it was blue, but, um, uh, and, um, but I was able to kind of let go and let that happen. And, and it felt right to me from whatever new perspective I was able to observe the, the complete dissolution of myself. I know it sounds very odd, but some new perspective emerged and it was not my usual self. It was some very objective self. And this experience had a lasting effect in that it gave me a, a kind of perspective on my ego that I hadn't had before. That it was, it was a voice, it was a tool, but I didn't have to listen to it. And I would survive its demise in some sense, not in the sense of an afterlife, but I didn't need that structure necessarily to, to continue to exist in the world. And um, so the lasting value there is a sense of, oh, I hear that's my ego talking. I don't have to listen to it. You know, he's, he's up to his old tricks. You know, is that kind of new perspective on something that I thought I was identical to that voice, that that was me. But that voice is, you know, it's one, it's one voice. Um, so that was a profound change. The other thing in terms of holding on, as you said, to, to what you learn, um, it made me a meditator uh, in a way I hadn't been. Um, and one of the really interesting things about psychedelic experience that doesn't get talked about nearly enough is that most of it is a meditation. That after this you know, period of maximum intensity and fireworks, there's a long denouement where you are um, essentially meditating you're not quite yourself yet, you, but you can control your thinking. You can decide to think about X or Y, and you're not distracted by anything in your environment. So it's a very, I mean, wonderful time where you're digesting what happened to you. And, um, and the psychedelic experience gave me a sense of where I was trying to get in meditation. What was the state of consciousness? I know we're not supposed to strive in meditation, but we do. Um, what was the the state I was, you know, the destination. And I had a much clearer sense of that. And when I began meditating seriously after my psychedelic experience, uh, I just had a lot more pleasure in it, a lot more success in it. And I discussed this um, with a scientist, a psychiatrist at Brown who studies meditation. And uh, he, he, he agreed. He said that there's a lot of interesting parallels between the meditative state and the psychedelic state. Uh, and indeed, this has this has been proven in um, fMRI scans when they take images of your brain uh, and they do it with people who've meditated for 10,000 hours, you know, really experienced meditators and people in the midst of a psilocybin journey 
at a pretty high dose, the same brain networks are suppressed in both cases. So they are similar states in the brain. Um, but he said to me, I could imagine a time where we will use psychedelic experience to launch a meditation practice that when you go to get trained or you go to your, you know, your retreat, they might, they might start with or give you the option of starting with a psychedelic experience and then moving out of it. And this is, this is the life story, you know, of a great many American Buddhists. The, the people who brought Buddhism to America, whether you're talking about John Kabat-Zinn or um, Jack Kornfeld, um, they, you know, they started on psychedelics and, uh, and then we're looking for a way to make that a practice. And psychedelics obviously can't be a practice. You're not going to take them every day. You're not going to want to, um, and you wouldn't get anything done. But um, so I, I don't think we would have Buddhism in America if not for psychedelics. So it's a very natural transition. And it certainly was that for me. Yes, there does seem to be a, a, a correlation between spiritual experience and the transcendence, the, the transcendent or psychedelic experiences induced by hallucinogens. And uh, uh, as best epitomized, perhaps, by that cultural moment that we've been discussing. And there are many people that sort of lived in that, um, you know, sort of in the cross the crossover of those two worlds of like that Venn diagram between, you know, sort of yeah. Ramdas and Leary and all, all, all those um, people. What it feels like is potentially this is a recurrence in you know, I know that's not how history operates, but it seems that once again, there is a perhaps for economic reasons, social reasons, perhaps for technological reasons, inevitably as a result of all of these um, intersecting factors, there seems again to be an interest in psychedelics. There seems to be an interest in alternative ways of living. There is a sort of a, a new, if not a laissez-faire attitude towards psychedelics. It seems to be more relaxed and it seems that sort yeah. of the new interests are starting to engage with psychedelics and its sort of medicinal potential and its uh, you know, potential as a psychotherapeutic drug and stuff. And I, um, you know, I... I wonder, if, like, like you said, like it's unlikely that any single factor is going to bring about a radical change in the way that we organise society. But like, I wonder how, if you see your work and your investigations in that, in the context of a culture that seems to be at some a place of uh, fracture uh, and division of censor and anxiety and fear and if your personal experiences and your subsequent research and study suggest to you that there is a role that could be played more widely culturally with the use of these plants yeah i mean there are two ways to look at that question one i think one reason that there is a new openness to psychedelics and i've been really surprised by that you know when i published how to change your mind in 2018 I expected a lot of pushback from uh, mainstream psychiatrists and, and the mental health establishment, um, but it was it was quite the opposite, um, and I was really surprised by that. And the reason was that people who are working in mental health know, full well know that their that their system is broken, um, that it doesn't work very well, it doesn't work for most people that the tools they have to deal with mental health problems are really lousy. Um, they have SSRIs by and large. Um, it, it, it's, and then they have uh, more powerful drugs for people dealing with personality disorders and manic depression and things. But basically they have SSRIs, which, you know, even at their best, when they were first introduced, performed two or three points, percentage points better than a placebo. Um, they were never very powerful. They do help some people, but there are a lot of people they don't help. And they um, have a lot of unpleasant side effects and they're addictive for all intents and purposes, very hard to get off them. Um, and so, you know, and this was driven home to me by um, someone who had been, uh, uh, Tom Insel, who'd been head of the uh, National Institute of Mental Health, the kind of top federal organization for uh, mental health. And he said, you know, that compared to other branches of medicine, compared to um, infectious disease or cardiology or oncology, mental health treatment has accomplished very little. 
Um, it's not prolonging lifespan. It's not significantly reducing human suffering like these other parts of medicine are. Now, the brain is a lot harder, you know, a harder problem to solve than the heart. Um, but um, so, so and, and mental health um, problems are getting much worse. I mean, we have, you know, rising rates of, of, of um, suicidality and depression and anxiety and addiction, and especially with the pandemic you know, all these things have gotten much worse. And I think people, I think psychedelics are in the process of, have, of undergoing this shift in identity from this disruptive force to uh, a force that could help heal society and help heal individuals from mental illness. And, um, and you know, one of the lessons of this book is that the drugs that lubricate the machinery of society tend to get approved, like caffeine, uh, and the ones that muck it up um, tend to be the ones that are stigmatized or made illegal. And I think we're undergoing a shift in psychedelics from being a drug that kind of got stuck in the wheels of society and slowed them down or complicated them to one where it actually may help because mental health is such a huge uh, problem right now. And um, I mean, we see it all the time. I mean, you know, look at the Olympics and, and, uh, and the people who've withdrawn from events because of mental health. There's a great, uh, much greater openness too to discussing mental health issues. Um, the stigma of, of revealing you have a mental health problem is, is lifting, which is a wonderful thing. But what we're seeing is how widespread it is, um, that people are really having a lot of trouble. And I think psychedelics can help them. As for society, you know, writ large, there's a there's a, a real conviction in the psychedelic community that these drugs could change consciousness in a positive way, that they could lead to a more spiritual orientation, that they could uh, increase people's sense of connectedness to one another and to nature. And certainly individually, that seems to be the case. But whether you can prescribe a drug to a whole society is an open question. The only example we really have is fluoride for our, you know, for our teeth. And uh, LSD is, we're not going to put it in the water supply. Um, so what does that mean exactly? Timothy Leary certainly thought it could, and in some ways in the 60s it did. But would it do it in predictable ways, in ways we'd be happy with? All these questions are, are kind of open. And, and um, I'm hopeful. Um, I, I see anecdotally when you talk to people that it certainly seems to push them in a, in a really productive direction in terms of their attitude toward nature and other people and the importance of love and, and, and the shift in values. But as I said earlier, I, I, I tend to wonder about the sample of people who are using them and whether they're already inclined in those directions and pushed further in those directions, which is fine. But is it going to work on people who are um, pushing in the other direction? Uh, and, and that, I don't know. And actually, it's research we want to do. Um, I, I teach at Berkeley in California, and we've a group of us have recently launched a, a center for the study of um, psychedelic science. And we want to do some social science, too, as well as hard science to look at the mechanisms. And one of the things we want to look at is, are there lasting changes in people's attitudes? Uh, political attitudes, attitudes toward nature, um, attitudes toward the community, the commons. And, you know, so have me back in five years and we'll let you know. Because I feel like, <clears throat> you know, as you said, like the substances that tend to succeed socially are advantageous to the systems of dominion. And if, uh, you know, as you said earlier, you know, one could posit that and Nixon certainly thought that the sort of countercultural wave and the sort of relatively significant dropping out of young people sort of facilitated dissent. I wonder if part of the uh, um, impeding of the profligation of these substances. It, it, was it like you know when you were talking about the mental health epidemic i was thinking what caused this mental health epidemic you know and um, the philosopher and uh, political critic i suppose mark fisher um like consistently argued before his own you know suicide sadly that that mental health 
ought to be regarded as a social epidemic rather than an individual condition and that it advantages our prevailing social systems to continue to regard it as an individual problem as opposed to a social problem when you have something like the sort of opioid crisis in in your country it's you can even to some degree see the fact the contributory factors attitudes to pharmaceutical companies a kind of lax attitudes their the economic despair that's as a result of decisions that are made and you know you can so the the you know the introduction or the promotion of substances that might cause people to query and question not only their own r role in society but society itself mm -hmm. I, I, for, I, I i'm you know i'm in recovery i can't ever use drugs again one day at a time and for me that includes sadly psychedelics blessedly not coffee but uh, i don't know how i'd cope michael i, I really don't but like uh, for me my experience my experience as a young man with psychedelics even though they were without tutelage or instruction or guidance and were therefore i feel somewhat chaotic and frightening actually in some cases but also beautiful and it's best to develop an ego before you uh yes i completely agree <laughs> before you yeah, dissolve it and like um, and i can't help but wonder when i think of i know uh, terence mckenna has his uh, critics but i kind of adore him i adore his imagination i endure yeah. the adore the speed of his intellect his ability to pull together stories and ideas his boldness of his conjecture and i feel like um you know that that possibly that that the the reason the the 60s became the 80s there's a yes we can became yes i can it became commodified and sold back to us and the idea that people might actually start to challenge some of the institutions that require uh, intransigence and re re require um the, the ongoing advantaging of the status quo it seems to me is like I don't see it in a, not in a conspiratorial way. I'm not 19 anymore. But like, uh, like you know, I do feel that you can't. If the more people that got spiritually switched on, it, it, however it happened to them, it, I think that would cause unrest, opposition, and an unwillingness to participate in social systems that benefit one strata of society, but by and large, disadvantage a huge number elsewhere. Well, but it could go two ways. I mean, you could have people, yes. Uh, turned on or enlightened by psychedelics and demanding a different kind of world, or you could have them retreating into their own private spiritual quest, right? I mean, whether that makes them active or not, I think is, is really a question. And, and I, don't, I don't think we know the answer to that. But I think that uh, Mark Fisher, whose work I, I don't know, I'll have to look it up, but I think he's absolutely right. I mean, I think, I think the mental health problems we're having are not about individuals, that they're about a, you know, a, a problem with society, with civilization. I mean, you know, the, the young people are facing um, uh, a, catacly a cataclysm around climate change. And they live in a world where things are going to get worse, um, and they can pretty fairly count on that. I mean, that is a huge stressor for our mental health. Um, and uh, so you could argue, as, you know, some radicals did in the 60s and 70s, that um, accommodating people to this world is not doing them a service uh, because the world is fucked up and that, um, you know, the whole idea of curing people of their discontent uh, is, is a lie because they have good reason to be discontented. Um, so, yeah. And I, and I completely agree with what you said about, um, you know, the links between addiction and social conditions. And, um, uh, I've written about this and I, I didn't know this. I, I kind of bought into the view, the drug war view that these substances are uniquely, uh, you know, that they have these hooks they put into us. If we're exposed to an addictive drug, we get addicted. Um, what's kind of interesting to learn is all the people who don't get addicted. Um, and, you know, how is that, that, you know, 70% of people who use opiates don't get addicted and, um, and true for, for many drugs, for alcohol too. Um, a lot of it has to do with the conditions of their lives and their upbringing and, you know, trauma that they have in their past. Um, uh, I, I don't know if you're familiar with the famous Rat Park experiments uh, that Johan Hari has written about, but um, this is 
quite eye-opening. You know, a lot of what we we think we know about addiction is based on these experiments where you put a rat in a cage and give him two levers to press. One administers uh, heroin or cocaine to its bloodstream and the other sugar water and nutrient. And the rat will press the, um, the lever for cocaine or heroin over and over again until it's addicted or dies. And this led us to believe that it was, a, it was purely a property of the chemical that led to addiction. Um, until a researcher in Canada named Bruce Alexander um, tried it with a very different cage. He created a rat park, really nice cage for rats, where they had other rats to play with and have sex with, and they had really good food and toys. And they didn't um, press the lever for the drugs over and over and over again. They tried them, um, but they weren't interested in them because they were socially connected. Um, and they had alternatives. And that first rat in that cage was more miserable than the researchers had any idea to believe. And the, and the, the medicine, if you can call it that, was a, uh, one of the very few pleasures available to that rat. So, of course, he used it. Um, so, you know, our understanding of addiction, you know, as a social problem, as well as an individual problem, has a long way to go. But I think we're moving in that direction. And the opioid crisis is a great uh, example of that. I mean, just look at the geography of that crisis. What, what are the places where you see these, these overdose deaths? They're, they're the same places that have high rates of alcoholism. They're places without economic prospects. They're places where the factories have closed, the mills have closed, the, um, the, the mines have closed. And people don't see a future for themselves. Uh, and so they self-medicate. Um, so, you know, ideally you fix the society and, and the mental health problems uh, and the addiction problems um, will diminish. Um, that would be the best way to do it. You know, do we have the political will to do that? Well, it's questionable. They do it in Switzerland. You know, they have a, a program for heroin addicts. If you're if you have a heroin problem, the government will actually give you a prescription to get heroin that you know is not contaminated and is safe uh, at the drugstore. And then they go to work on your life. You know, they make sure you have a good job and good housing and, and, and good therapy. And then they help you get off the drug. But they, they realize they have to fix the life first. That's a huge commitment for a society to make. And, you know, I mean... Hats off to the to the Swiss for doing it, but I don't see it in my society, and I don't see it in your society. No, and I think that you know my personal experience, and to some degree my you know study of addiction, is that it's an attempt to sort of synthesize uh, conditions that a more enlightened society might provide. And to a degree, to create a kind of spiritual, if you can sort of consider spiritual to mean the sort of any, the engagement of awe, the appreciation of, of uh, sort of compassion and connection, and and, and, I, and transcendence of the everyday, right? Of you know a kind of transcendence of everyday normal consciousness, which can be very troubling. Yes, people. because I, I minded there, um, Michael, of something that sort of William James wrote in, William James wrote in Variety of Religious Experience, that like all, all these levels of consciousness, you know, whether they're the, the levels accessed by the use of caffeine or the, the, the planes of consciousness accessed through the use of psilocybin or ayahuasca, they are co continually present, that they are continually present and that the function of uh, uh, the spiritual life is to somehow gain access to these planes so that we don't remain unduly interlocked into the kind of egoic, materialistic, mechanistic perspective that the, you know, our overly caffeinated society presents to us as the sort of as a sort of an uh, a, a monolith, an obelisk of absolute reality. And. Yeah, I suppose that this is um, that this is given that my interest in, in, in substances must one day at a time forever remain kind of a sort of a speculative and voyeuristic one. Like it's and and, and but my interest in spirituality is ongoing and empirical. It's that that's what like you know my you know I, I'm looking for someone to tell me it'd be fine for me to take ayahuasca, fine for me to take psilocybin. 
but I can never get anyone to to sign. You know, certainly no one with experience of recovery and and yeah. you know sort of serious chemical dependency to sort of sign it off. Although, like you know, I, I acknowledge that it's a powerful therapeutic substance for people that are currently using drugs. For people that are, are not using drugs and haven't for eighteen and a half years, so like you know, I can't find many people. Although you know, Gabor Mate said that I'd probably be all right, but Pete, but like he's in spite of his you know his, his brilliance and his experience with treating drug addicts he's not a drug addict you know and like when people say yeah. you won't want to do it again it makes you sick well heroin makes you sick you won't want to do it all the time you know like yourself you know like it's a like so for me like uh i i'm the reason that it interests me the reason your work interests me is because i'm interested in alter in how we might alter society how we might live might we live differently and you know and like it comes to mind that capitalism is pretty robust you know like that steve yeah. jobs can have the experiences that he had and and, and we, we've seen the magnificent and experience and i'm literally using right now some of the magnificent results of part at least of his vision but like when it comes to um realizations epiphanies uh, and uh, you know just plain ideas that are at odds with the interests of currently empowered systems it's very very difficult to introduce them yeah well i think well a couple things um there are other ways of achieving psychedelic states without drugs um there is a, a breath work holotropic breath work uh it seems to me that would be something you could explore uh and it's a, it's a, i've done it once and it's a remarkable uh it's a breathing technique that comes from, it was invented by Stan Groff, uh, a psychedelic psychiatrist in the US, who once, when, when LSD was made illegal, he was using it in his therapy uh, sessions and found it very useful. And uh, he wanted to come up with a legal psychedelic, uh, a non-drug psychedelic. And he came up with this, it's a pattern of breathing that puts you into a trance state. Uh, where you do have hallucination, it's it's really interesting um, and uh, and safe for an addict. It would seem to me, um, and that's one thing. And and you're already very interested in meditation, of course. And as you as you get deeper and deeper into meditation, people do have mystical experiences on meditation. So so this this world isn't closed off to you entirely. Um, and you know that um, uh, Bill W., the founder of AA, uh, attempted to get uh, LSD um, uh, incorporated into the AA program. And um, wiser heads, I think, uh, prevailed and said, this is really going to complicate the message we're putting out there. Um, but he, you know, he found it very helpful in getting sober. And we do find uh, psychedelics are, are proving their value as a treatment for addiction. Um, but anyway, so I, I put that out there. Um, you know, I think the, the psychedelic experience is, is very much, it, it's so, uh, dependent on set and setting, uh, Timothy Leary's, you know, uh, terms for the mindset you bring to it and the setting in which you do it, that, um, it's hard to say how much is really in, inherent in that experience and how much we bring to it. Um, and that, you know, Leary and Aldous Huxley, they, they saw psychedelic experience in this very Eastern way that, you know, that, that kind of probably solidified its, its, its ties to Buddhism. Um, but of course you have new world psychedelics that are used in a very different way. And, uh, you know, and one of the things I was very interested to, to work on in this new book was how native Americans use, um, peyote. Um, and, you know, I think as a society, when psychedelics arrived, they didn't come with an instruction manual. And, and sometimes in the 60s, we used them in a very reckless way. You know, people would put LSD in the punch bowl. Uh, the CIA dosed people without their permission. Um, you know, people would just take LSD and walk around the streets of Manhattan, which is not an ideal setting. Uh, and sometimes have really awful, terrifying experiences that wound them up in the emergency room at the hospital. Um, but at the same time, you have this long-term use of a psychedelic, a mescaline, which is uh, the, the uh, chemical produced by the peyote cactus, being used by Native Americans in this incredibly conservative way, 
Um, they use it in a ceremony, a very rigid ceremony that is led by a, what's called a roadman, who is the shaman in this context. It's used to treat people and to treat the community. Um, and uh, there, there's a lot of rules to, you know, exactly how the ceremony unfolds. Uh, ritual is very important to it. And Native Americans, who are one of the most traumatized people on this planet, um, I mean, you know, it was deliberate policy of the U.S. government to absolutely destroy their culture for many years, uh, until quite recently, in fact. Um, they have found it uh, incredibly uh, conservative in the literal sense of conserving Indian culture when it was on the, on the verge of annihilation. So that tells me that, that the same class of drug can be used in, in very different contexts and, and have different effects. Um, so I was, I was interested in, you know, what do we have to learn from Native American uh, and indigenous use of psychedelics? Because they've been at it for thousands of years. You know, we're, we've only been at it for 50 years. Um, and so what have they learned about how to use them? Um, what precautions do they take? Uh, and, and so I, I spent a lot of time interviewing Native Americans about this. And, um, uh, and it, was, it was fascinating to see. And it, and it, and it, lent, it lent credence to this idea that psychedelics could turn out to be something uh, less threatening to society and more helpful to society um, than I'd thought before. Did these people have a seemingly, well, definitely personal, but seemingly consistent experience of the divine, or at least of ulterior planes of consciousness? And and, and I'm interested in particular in the, the idea of there being consistent motifs. Um, in fact, even we could use the term archetypes. Much of what sort of McKenna describes yeah. seems to be like... With the DMT. Yeah, like yeah. that you encounter a consistent language or at least image system that could be seen as inverted commas real in a maybe in a, even a Lacanian way. The, 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 yeah, the, so that's a very interesting research question, too. I mean, Terence McKenna introduced this idea, particularly with respect to DMT, that people would, you know, it was very common to encounter these these uh, entities, um, sometimes described as machine elves, robotic elves that were very friendly and suggested to him that you entered a different dimension on DMT and that that's who lived in that dimension. And many people report this, which is, which is kind of remarkable. What I don't know is have we, have we experimented with people who were never exposed to that idea, that expectation, that you know, never heard about machine elves, and do they experience it too? I mean, McKenna planted that meme in our society, and it's pretty widespread, certainly in the psychedelic community. So, um, you know, you need a kind of you need a kind of controlled experiment to see whether people do have the same kind of imagery. Another example is ayahuasca, you know, which has a strong association with the Amazon. And people, you know, there are always cobras showing up <laughs> and panthers and, you know, um, the, the appropriate animals uh, totally are, are part of it. And, and on psilocybin as opposed to LST, people have lots of imagery of, of, of uh, greenery and woods and, you know, very organic. Um, and I don't know whether there's anything inherent in these drugs that would would lead you to have that kind of imagery or is it just the expectation we bring to it? Um, and, you know, it goes back to that idea that these are very, the, that we construct this experience. There's nothing in those molecules, right? I mean, those molecules don't contain any narratives, don't contain childhood trauma, don't contain, you know, images of cobras. It's a catalyst in your brain. It's, it's starting a process that's opening you up to things in your subconscious uh, or in your past, or even in the, in the world outside, you know, by letting in additional sensory information, you're seeing nuances of color you may never have seen before, but they're really there. Um, so the whole, you know, how true is the experience is an interesting one. It's, it's your truth, certainly, um, because where else is this stuff coming from? 
Um, but these are, you know, these are really interesting mysteries of the process. And this idea of, that you mentioned of James, that these dimensions of consciousness always exist, but we're closed off from them. I mean, Huxley and James agreed that consciousness is a, is, is a, a reducing valve. It's, it's limiting what comes in on the theory that we don't need everything that's happening out there. We only need that, what Huxley called the, the, the measly trickle of information that's really good for, you know, getting yourself fed and reproducing and, you know, doing what you need to do to move your DNA into the next generation. And um, uh, all this other stuff, um, this incredible um, potential sensory information is shut out because we would be overwhelmed. And I describe in uh, This Is Your Mind on Plants uh, a mescaline journey that I took um, and because um, it was one psychedelic I hadn't used in, in the last book. And um, there was a period of just being kind of overwhelmed by, you know, the, the phrase I used from, uh, I'm quoting a poet, um, is the immensity of existing things. I mean, it was like existence was so overwhelming. Uh, it was it was more than I could bear for a period of time. And that's because my mind was letting in lots of stuff it normally keeps out. Uh, I think our consciousness eliminates more than it admits. And that's that's kind of one of the mind blowing things about psychedelics. Yes. And perhaps the function of a culture is to designate which streams are yes. valued and to set up sort of meritocratic systems that uh, select what strata of information is. Well, that's, that's how we educate our children, right? To like, don't pay attention to that stream. I mean, kids have all these wild streams of information coming in and we teach them that, no, 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 that's fantasy or um, this is what you want to focus on. And that's what's schooling's that's what schooling is um narrowing consciousness um this i, I interviewed psychologists for the book who, who speak in terms of two broad categories of consciousness one is spotlight consciousness that allows us to focus get things done block out extraneous so-called extraneous material and the other is lantern consciousness which takes in information from all directions is very common in children younger than five or six um, who can't focus very well, but take in all this incredible information. Um, and so education in our society is moving from lantern consciousness to spotlight consciousness. And, um, and much is lost when we do so. Yes. Yes, I, I, I agree. It's, it seems like sort of the, the, there's a, an imbalance between those types of attention and the, those fashions of light that, that are possibly we we lose a lot by eliminating the what you describe or was and there's a lot of creativity too in in lantern consciousness uh, i think i mean you know there've been these really interesting experiments there's certain kinds of problems that children can solve better than adults oh really when yeah there's a there's a, a psychologist here named Alison Gopnik at Berkeley who's done these really interesting experiments and um if the solution to a a puzzle or a game involves some kind of radical rethinking, um, adults won't figure it out because they tend to have these algorithms of like, this is usually how you fix this kind of problem. And that's very use useful for everyday life because problems do recur more or less in the same way. But if you make the rules such that you have to do something really crazy to um, solve the puzzle, kids four-year-olds will do it better than adults that's so because cool. i mean they're they're literally willing to think outside the box they have crazy ideas that have a low chance of working but again if it's that low probability solution they'll hit a they'll hit on it before adults do i'm so entrenched in adulthood that i can't even envisage how you would design such an experiment i'm imagining that they put you in a room somewhere and you have to sort of throw a boot through a hoop to open a door <laughs> to get you out <laughs> You know, I don't remember the exact experiment. It was it was something like that, but it was a uh, it was a, one of these boxes that you have to hit in such a way to make it uh, ring, to make it make a sound. And you know, and 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 the adults would try to figure out the pattern of like hammer hits, and the kid would just like, I'm going to hit it from the bottom now, <laughs> do something really nuts. And and that that indeed is what the game was set up to 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 require. What does your uh, what as a both as a writer and as an 
academic and educator what are you where are you going next you sort of talked momentarily about the idea of sort of social experimentation with hallucinogens what else are you planning yeah so i'm not an academic i'm a writer uh i'm a journalist i teach at berkeley but i teach in the journalism school you know which Mm. barely counts as academia uh, and I also teach writing at Harvard. Um, so I just teach what I do. Um, I don't have a expertise. I mean, that's what I love about journalism is I get paid to learn new topics all the time. Um, and, and psychedelics was a, a real departure from things. I, I'd written a lot about food and agriculture for many years. I'm, my, my fundamental interest is in the human engagement with, with plants and with nature and how we use plants and how they use us. And, um, so, you know, food is an important part of that story. And so are, so is medicine, plant medicines. Um, as to where I'm going next, you know, something that happens to people who experiment with psychedelics is they get really interested in consciousness. Um, what the hell is it? How do brains produce it? Um, why do we have no explanation uh, as yet as to how it arises? Um, so, and then we have, you know, Buddhism, which has, is, as as well-developed a theory of consciousness as, as Western science. So there's something in that area I want to work on. I want to uh, understand what we do and don't know about consciousness and, and what um, things like Buddhism can teach us, psychedelics, and, you know, traditional Western science, which has really made remarkably little progress in understanding consciousness because it's, it's an internal, uh, you know, it's a subjective uh, phenomenon that you can't measure. Uh, and, and, and we've designed our science um, to measure things, uh, you know, that can be measured, you know, from outside. But we maybe need to hit the bottom of the box with a hammer to understand. Yeah. <laughs> that's part of my plan. So I don't know exactly, but that's where I'm that's where I'm reading right now and sniffing around. Yeah, that seems like a, a, a really in, exciting and interesting topic for you. Well, if you're writing about sort of um, plants, we do talk about kind of um, monoculture and the proliferation of certain oh, yeah. plants and how, like the, what the kind of symbiosis between us and, and our agricultural environments. Well, I, I've written a lot about that and, and uh, corn in particular, you know, um, maize in our country has taken over our landscapes and taken over our diets. And, you know, we grow this monoculture of corn and soy, which soya, which alternates. I couldn't hear what you said. You've, what you've done there is you've activated Siri there. Siri, with, I know, yeah. but it was a male Siri. I've never, I've never <laughs> met him. Um, yeah, if you get excited, Siri wakes up. Sorry about that. Um, and uh, our agriculture and our food system are screwed up, and and it's the same reason. It's monoculture. Um, we grow too many, too much of the same thing, which requires a lot of pesticide to keep going. But it also produces a diet that is full of meat and processed food, because if you if all you grow is corn and soy, neither of which are really edible directly, uh, you're going to eat a lot of meat. You're going to eat a lot of processed food. So diversifying our fields and diversifying our diets uh, have to go hand in hand. Um, So, yeah, I've written a lot of very critical things about the food system, about the meat industry and you know, to me, it's all of a piece with this relationship with plants, where it goes wrong, where it goes right. Um, and the fact that we think of domestication as something we do to plants like corn or or um, or even, you know, peyote um, or, or coffee. Um, but of course, they're doing something to us, too. Their evolutionary strategy is to sat- gratify our desires. Right. I mean, plants. Plants are brilliant, but they are limited in that they can't move around. So they have to use chemistry to get animals like us to do work for them, to move their seeds around the world, to create habitat. You know, corn got us to eliminate the forests so it would have more habitat. Um, And it did that by being very useful to us um, to a fault. And now we have way too much of it. So anyway, so I've been looking at that symbiosis. um, And I really I mean, I wrote a book whose subtitle was A Plant's Eye View of the World. Uh, It's called The Botany of Desire. And I really see plants as operating on us. When you mow your lawn, you are doing, it seems like you're forcing the plants, you know, into your little system, uh, your neat little system. But in fact, what you're doing 
is eliminating the trees, uh, which are the plants' competitors for sunlight. <laughs> and you are doing so. You are, you know, you are their dupes. You are doing exactly what they want you to do. You must be familiar then with the writing of like uh, Merlin Sheldrake, who talks oh, about. Oh yeah. My yeah, no, network. Merlin's great. Um, I loved his book on uh, on fungus, um, yeah. Entangled Life. It's a wonderful book. Yeah, it's fantastic, isn't it? And and I suppose in in a way, and perhaps this um takes us back to where we began that you know perhaps consciousness itself is a sort of a symbiotic relationship between us and many of the other entities with which we share the planet there must be you know like given that we can't demonstrate how it comes from matter like there still has to be some contemplation of ideas like panpsychism it's mm-hmm. very very difficult to uh yeah well panpsychism is getting a hearing um uh, right now that everything is conscious to some degree um and it's a weird idea it's hard for us to credit but that's our egotism right we see ourselves as being the only conscious subject and everything else is an object that we work on and that's probably a mistake i mean it's a mistake with regard to other animals and it's a mistake with regard to plants um i don't think Plants are conscious the way we are, but they have their own interests. They have their agency. They have their subjectivity, and um, uh, and we we fail to see that you know at our peril. And it's one of the one of the reasons we abuse nature to the extent we do is we we just see it as objects that we can act on, you know, with no particular uh, compunction. Um, as soon as you see a subjectivity in these other species, you have moral obligations. Uh, to limit suffering. And, and um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I think our, our view of nature needs to be um, deepened and psychedelics can definitely help do that. I mean, one of the things that psychedelics do is the, the world seems much more alive than it ever did before. I mean, I, I had one experience, which I talk about in uh, How to Change Your Mind, of, of walking through my garden um, when I've, I've taken a, a pretty healthy dose of uh, psilocybin and and this sense that I was just one one character among a great many others in this garden. I, I was in it to an extent I had never been before because most of us feel like we have a relationship to nature. You know, that's a weird term for an animal to use. I mean, we're in it. We are it. But we don't feel that way. We feel we have one foot in, one foot out. And we are the only thinking subject. And in this particular moment, um, all the plants in my garden and the dragonflies and the bees had had their own subjecthood, um, their own personhood. And it was, they were returning my gaze. It was very powerful. And um, that sense of connectedness, of being one species among many, you know, it sounds weird, but of course it's true. I mean, we are very connected and every species is doing its own thing for its own, you know, reasons. And, um, we are in this entangled life, as, as uh, Merlin put it. And, you know, his father, too, has very interesting theories of consciousness, Rupert Sheldrake, that it's a field um, that we tune in. Um, and uh, I don't think we can f- discount those ideas until we've done a lot more work. No, I like that stuff, man. I love all that morphic resonance and that yeah. in addition to sort of genealogical information, there is some kind of transmorphic resonant field that beings are growing into. And I was thinking then when you were talking about plants and our relationship to plants is that we can appreciate the telos in botany, that there is a kind of a purpose to a seed. But the distinction between that and intention, I suppose, is yeah. a degree of agency and in this sort of in this detail the difference between telos and intention like being i suppose a, a elective agency the ability to make a kind of decision is that you know, that that's within that liminal space our subjugation of nature our separation from nature seems to have thrived that's perhaps the point of bifurcation and it's very yeah. beautiful to hear you describe that um, vivid and livid, libidinous garden. Yeah, no, I mean, I think that's an important dis- distinction. I don't think that plants have intentions in the in our sense of understanding, but they have goals and objectives, and um, uh, and and they have intelligence, um, and, which is to say, if you define intelligence as a problem-solving ability, um, they have remarkable intelligence. Um, they solve you know, their whole existential problem of being stuck in place 
using neurochemistry to a large extent to solve it. But even, you know, when they face obstacles, um, plants remember, they have memory. I mean, there've been very interesting experiments that show that, that plants learn and remember things. Um, and where do they do it? We don't know. We don't know, you know, they're structured in a different way. Yet lots of things are preserved. You know, plants have serotonin too. What's that all about? Um, so anyway, I'm, I'm very interested in plant intelligence and uh, have written about it before. And it's, um, there's, there's, you know, there's some really interesting research going on right now, uh, testing some of these ideas um, and, and looking at uh, communication among plants. Um, the fact that plants can hear, you know, if you play the sound of chomping, of an insect chomping on leaves next to a plant, it will release chemicals to make it taste less good. Oh, wow. So, so how do they hear? You know, they're picking up vibrations. Um, and there's some evidence to suggest they can see. I mean, they know when light certainly is limited. Um, we don't know how much detail there is. Um, there is so much we don't know about them. And we are so arrogant. I mean, look, they have been evolving longer than we have. It's just on another track. You know, we've been on this track of consciousness and language and tool making. And that's, you know, so we prize all that stuff. Well, they're on another track. They've been on it longer than we have. And they've gotten really good at it. I mean, we can't match them in chemistry yet. That's amazing. Michael, thank you very much for um, spending this time with me and opening our mind to so many avenues of possibility and so many lanes of inquiries incredible range of references wonderful to be in your company and learn from you thank you very much for coming on man oh thank you russell it's a great pleasure to talk to you i very much enjoy your podcast oh you're very kind to say so michael thank you man thank you Thank you for listening to Under the Skin with Michael Pollan. Let me know what you thought of it on Instagram or tweet me at Rusty Rockets on Under the Skin. Come and see me live. If you like that, why don't you listen to Wendy Mandy? I was just talking to Wendy Mandy. Do you <laughs> like Wendy Mandy? I don't know of her. Ah, she's great. I mean, she was here. She'll stab you with a pin. Mm. You need to stab him with a pin. She just does <laughs> it. Like It's not like normal acupuncture where you're laying down. She just come up to you and stab you with a pin. Does it work? I think so. It hurt. Is it? Really hurt. But what about, apart from the pain? I don't know about that. <laughs> no, it's really good. Dr. Robin Carhart-Harris as well. Check him out. What does he talk about? Hallucinogens. Yeah. Hallucinogens. Yeah. It's weird that that is that n in there, isn't it? Well, it's not, it's, it can't be hallucinogens. What about hallucinogens? Is that not enough? No, I don't think so. got to be hallucinogens. Yeah. So the n, I just think yeah, it's I like not... It, it I could like be hallucinogens. <laughs> <laughs> I've, help me! I've taken hallucinogens! <laughs> I don't feel very well. <laughs> if someone said that, I think I'd take their complaints more seriously, wouldn't you? Yeah. Oh, them hallucinogens, you give me, <laughs> it's giving me mischief in my belly. It's yeah. giving me mischief. Why do they make your stomach go a bit weird? Hallucinogens? Yeah, do they? Sometimes they make, make you do a poo. And I've never, <laughs> those, I've never took them Arabesca ones or nothing. Yeah, remember, well, that makes you throw up. I know. People... That, that doesn't sound fun. I don't care. Who cares? A bit of throwing up for some lovely drugs. It's a brilliant deal. I remember mm. when heroin makes you throw up. Then it stops you pooing. It does all sorts of things. <laughs> but you stay loyal to it. Or just... You don't just give up on something. Do <laughs> 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 you, Jen? Are we in the outro? Yeah, we're in the outro. <laughs> we're in the outro. Anyway, I hope you enjoyed that. And uh, keep listening to Under the Skin from Luminary. <laughs> <laughs> Goodbye. <laughs> For listening to Under the Skin.